This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to Café Connect, where we bring you the latest research from the University of Aberdeen. We will meet different researchers who will talk about their projects and how are they relevant to our lives. This is a response to the current social distancing situation. And if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Please email peru at abdn.ac.uk. However, please know that we won't be able to answer questions that are related to personal cases. This podcast series is part of a wider set of events and activities run by the University of Aberdeen, which seek to connect us with our vast community, both locally and across the globe. In 2020, we celebrate our 525th anniversary, and this is part of that celebration. Today, we are delighted to welcome Professor Zosha Miedzirbroska, who is a clinical geneticist, Dr. Jonathan Petit, reader in genetics, and Dr. Lynn Manny, project manager for genome sequencing in NHS Scotland. We will be discussing whole genome sequencing and the opportunities and challenges it presents. So welcome to our podcast. I'll start by asking Zosha, first of all, if uh, you can explain, uh, if you give us, if you can give us an example of when do you think genome sequencing is uh, important and who could benefit from whole genome sequencing? I would like to give you the example of uh, a family that I know well. They have a son who was born um, a number of years ago and he initially seemed fine but as time went by he didn't meet the normal milestones for child development he was slow to sit slow to walk slow to talk and as time went by it became clear he had really quite severe learning disability the family really wanted to know what was what was going on what was the cause of the problem and if they had another child what would happen so that's the sort of patient i would see as somebody who would really benefit from whole genome sequencing in the way we're doing it now thank you zosha so and then if i can go to jonathan and ask to if he can explain to us what genome sequencing is and what is a genome as well yes probably best to start defining what a genome is um, so it's a string of chemicals in simple terms. Uh, you often think about, we often hear about the genome as being a string of letters, and that's the four chemicals that are arranged into DNA, and they're arranged in a code, the genetic code. Um, you might be surprised that most of, most of your genetic code, or we also use the term genome, isn't really doing anything important that you care about. Uh, about 90% of your genome is freeloading. Uh, and we know this from multiple lines of evidence. So only about 10%, maybe 15% tops is doing things that, that you'd be, you, you want to know about really from your, from your own health and perspective. Now, a popular metaphor is that the human genetic codes is like a book, but really it's actually more like a copy of Vogue because as I've already said, most of it's filled with useless junk. You have to wade through the advertisements and perfume sachets to find the bits that you want to read. Um, 
Actually, that's a, that's a poor metaphor. Your genome's actually 46 copies of Vogue. Uh, one set of 23 copies you inherit from your mum, the other you get from your dad, plus a mini supplement that only a mum gives you, which is the mitochondrial DNA. That's a separate bit of DNA. Um, and so because it's a, a string of chemicals, we can read that string of chemicals. Uh, we've been able to do that for several decades now. Um, we've got better and better at doing that, and it's got cheaper, when, and therefore, because we've got better doing it, it's got cheaper. And so it's got sufficiently cheap now that we could conceivably uh, sequence the genomes of every single person. Okay, thank you. So, um, Lynn, how is genome sequencing being used in Scotland? So, here at the University of Aberdeen for the last four years now, we've been coordinating a research study, which is a collaboration between the NHS and Scotland, particularly the, um, the genetics services within NHS Scotland, together with the, um, the medical schools and also uh, across Scotland and Genomics England, who are um, a company that are completely owned by the UK Department of Health. So um, Genomics England were responsible for delivering something called the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was set up back in 2012. Um, and in Scotland, we um, got some funding to um, take part in this project where we were able to contribute genomes from a thousand um, NHS Scotland patients. So these thousand people are um, individuals who have been diagnosed with a rare, presumed to be inherited condition and their family members. Um, and we've been sequencing the genomes of these families and analysing them collaboratively together with Genomics England. And then these results get returned back to the NHS Scotland Genetics Laboratories to try and make sense of in the hope that we are able to achieve a diagnosis for families who have been living with these rare conditions and often for quite some time who have been through the NHS genetics system and have had a number of tests done before still haven't learned what the cause of the condition is in their family and how it's been inherited how this condition has arose within their family member um, so we, the, the purpose of this research is to try and figure out how many of those patients we can try and get a diagnosis for, as well as understand what kind of new systems that we need to put in place to enable us to deliver this as a, as a test within the, um, within the NHS in Scotland. And also understand better, for example, how much it might cost the NHS to introduce this as a test, how well does it compare with other tests that are currently being delivered by the NHS and at what point and who you would do this test for. So Jonathan, if I come back to you, um, which bits of the genome can then cause disease? Um, so, so, as I've said, your, your genome's uh, broken up into 47 segments, the 46 uh, chromosomes, uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes, so 46 chromosomes in total, plus the mitochondrial DNA. And in principle, uh, a mutation or a genetic change in any, in any location could cause a disease. But, but realistically, what we find is that most of the disease-causing variants, or the, the variants that are associated with genetic disease, only affect the parts of your genome which make the proteins. Okay, so proteins 
little machines that, that operate in your cell. They, they perform lots of different functions. And in many respects, you could say you are literally built from the activity of proteins. And the proteins are made from the instructions in the DNA. So if you damage the DNA instructions, there's a potential that you'll damage the proteins. And so it's, it's, these, it's these variations in protein function which, which can cause genetic disease. On average, uh, comparing the genomes of any, any two people, you would expect to find uh, one variation in every thousand letters of the genetic code. Most of these variants will have absolutely no consequences whatsoever. So the, the variants that, that might have uh, an effect in terms of genetic disease are very rare. And so how do we know which of these differences in the genome are relevant for a patient's condition, Zosha? Let's look at this in two ways. We take an example of a lady who is found to have breast cancer at an early age. Say she's, she's 39 and she remembers that her mother had breast cancer and her aunt had ovarian cancer. We would offer that lady a test specifically of two genes that are known to cause breast cancer and ovarian cancer in families. We would just look at those particular genes. To take Jonathan's Vogue example, we would, we would look in a particular issue of Vogue, we would look at a particular page, and we would know that in that paragraph of text, we, we, would, we would be looking at everything that's about um, Paris in the sun today. And we would be looking through that for a spelling mistake. We wouldn't be looking through the rest of the volume. We wouldn't be looking through all the other issues of Vogue. We'd just be looking exactly what we're looking for. In contrast, there are some, so that's where we, we see that a particular condition appears to be caused by a limited number of genes. There are 22,000 odd genes, and of those, something like 10,000 are currently implicated in genetic conditions. So looking at all of those can be a challenge. And genome sequencing allows us to look at the sequence of all of those genes. But the nightmare then in the lab is that there's something like six and a half million differences from the normal pattern in in all of those genes that we've sequenced. So in order to look at which ones might be the cause, say, let's take the example of the little boy with, the, with learning disability we spoke about at the beginning. If we focus our analysis by filtering out what's the variation that we see commonly, that takes the amount of variation right down just, just by doing that. What we can also do is, is take that down even further by looking at just the differences that we see in the child that, that are not present in their parent. And that would suggest to us what, a, what we call a de novo, a new mutation arising in the child. And then we can filter that down to specifically the ones that alter proteins and then look at disease genes that we know cause that pattern of disease. And that's how we then go from six and a half million differences 
right down to a very small number, which are manageable for the lab to look through. And we look through those manually. And where we recognize a pattern, then we can make a diagnosis. So what happened with this particular child was that we filtered down to a, a just three or four differences that appear, were in genes known to cause learning disability. And when we looked at the, how the, the child's photographs and compared them to photographs of children who had differences recorded in that gene, we saw a striking similarity. And that allowed us to confirm that that difference was due to a particular gene that of which really there is a limited number of reports of that gene causing disease, but enough that it's been useful for the family and actually now allows that family to make decisions about whether they want to have another child because because he was this child was the first one in the family to develop it. He didn't inherit the difference from his parents. The chances of those parents having another child were the same thing, a low. And so that is a huge, a huge piece of news for the family because it means that risk in the next pregnancy is, is, is very low. Okay, thank you. And so what do we still need to know then for whole genome sequencing tests to be useful? Go to come to you, Zosha, first of all. I think it's about the context. So in current NHS context, genome sequencing already has is useful. It's still quite an expensive test though. And the devolved nations have not yet made long-term commitments to use whole genome sequencing as a routine part of care because the cost of an interpreting, testing a genome and interpreting it is, is somewhere of the order of about £7,000. And that contrast is being considerably more than looking at specific genes. However, there is a huge benefit to patients. There's a huge benefit to care. And one of the projects that we're doing at Aberdeen University is looking in detail to weigh up the advantages and the disadvantages, not just for the healthcare system, but also for individual families to help inform that funding decision. So that's something else we need to know. When we move out of the context of very rare disease, the more we learn about the genome, the more useful testing will become and the better that we'll be able to use high throughput analytics to make predictions about individual diseases in people. However, um, I would say that the use of this type of technology in predicting common disease is a different challenge and that's that's something that we're not going to discuss today here but I think the more the more genomes we sequence in the context of rare disease, the more useful it will be for families and hopefully it will make it less work for the labs and that will cut the cost, which will make it more available. Thank you. And Jonathan, would you like to add anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I agree with everything that Zosha is saying. I mean... I think the one of the areas that that's still underdeveloped, even before we go to whole genome sequencing, is categorizing the disease, the genes that we know are associated with genetic disease. So the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, which are associated with breast and ovarian cancer, um, 
we know that there are lots of variation in those genes that haven't been clinically that hasn't been clinically defined and it, it, so if you uncover a variant in a patient in in one of those genes it's not a given that that variant will be causing will be associated with disease however we can't also rule out the possibility that those those genetic variants will cause a disease so what we need to build up more i think is to focus on genes and uh, that are known to cause disease and looking at the variation that exists out there in the population and associating that with with different disease outcomes and i think that that's something that we could we, we really should be focusing on now and a number of researchers i know not just clinical researchers but also basic scientists are calling for this this kind of an approach um, i would agree that uh looking at we've looked at what we've talked about today is is mainly um, what we call rare genetic diseases it's worth pointing out though that the rare genetic diseases although individually rare they actually constitute quite a large proportion um, I, it, I, I think I'm right in saying that it's about one in hundred one in a hundred people no it's it's one in 17. 117. One in 17 people. So are they carrying a rare genetic disease? Is that right? Affected by a rare. Affected by? Wow. Okay. Yes, it's not rare to have a rare condition. Yes. So, I mean, and that comes about because there are lots of genes and there are lots of ways in which those genes can be, can, can, can be changed, can be mutated. Um, but the other thing, of course, is as well, is the idea that uh, common diseases, so diseases we're more familiar with and diseases that affect more people in the population just generally, like heart coronary artery disease and that sort of thing, those also have a, 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 a genetic contribution. Okay, But as, as Zosha's pointed out, that's much harder to get to because there we're looking at thousands, hundreds, probably thousands in many cases, of small genetic changes which on their own don't really contribute very much, but cumulatively contribute to a person's overall risk. Uh, and we're still, uh, that, that sort of study is still in its infancy. I think if I can just chip in at this stage as well, it's Lynn here, I think one of the, the other things that is a challenge for clinical geneticists and laboratory scientists and, and also a kind of a gap in terms of research understanding, we can now with relative ease read the human genome sequence and understand sites of variation for every single person. What we um, are not so good at, or not so well able to do just yet, is actually understand what the impact of each of those individual variations is. So, quite, and that's because actually the understanding the biological function of a protein and then understanding what impact individual genetic variations have on that is very kind of labour intensive, laboratory based science, very specific to the gene under investigation. So imagine that you're doing that for 20,000 genes and then for all of the variants that have been reported within each of those genes, that's a huge undertaking. Um, and actually some of the so some of our ability to make sense of the variants that we find in families is because some of that biological knowledge has not yet been generated. So there are variants out there which potentially are the cause of some of these rare conditions, but we just don't have the biological knowledge yet to be able to state definitively that that is the case. So that's another huge kind of research gap that um, could really usefully be addressed. 
And those, I think, are the reasons why having just going out and testing any child, maybe at birth, for every single genetic condition is, is not really a feasible undertaking at the moment. It's, it's possible it might inform some decisions, but it would come at an enormous cost. And a lot of the significant disease could be missed and yet you could cause a lot of anxiety and worry if you told everyone about every single problem that they might get, which not all of which they will get. And and I think going forwards, the, these are the questions that the, the Big 100,000 Genomes Project we've been part of is trying to address. But we're also looking to improve our, our NHS systems to make sure that, as as we put it in Scotland, Every pa- the right patient gets the right test at the right time. Um, there's one, one, one thing that we haven't mentioned, just because uh, I know there'll be colleagues of mine out, uh, if they heard this, would be ranting. Uh, we've, focused on pro- we've, we've focused on proteins, uh, but another c- important player in terms of building the cellular machinery is, is molecules known called RNA. RNA is a cousin of DNA. Um, it's, an inter- it's an intermediate in, in the flow of information from DNA to protein, but RNA molecules also play important functional roles in, in their own right as well. Um, and again, uh, that's something that we would still need to master because we know that there will be diseases associated with RNA, so human genetic diseases associated with RNA, but those are much harder to work on than the protein coding genes. So just a call out for the RNA community. Thank you, Jonathan. That's really important. And obviously, we've, we've talked to you about some of the kind of gaps in research understanding that need to be addressed to um, the gaps as we understand them from this side of the fence in terms of what we need to know to be able to better under, understand the human genome and make sense of the human genome. But actually, um, as citizens, you may have questions yourself that as researchers we haven't thought about yet. So please do get in touch with us um, through the email address that was mentioned at the beginning if you have any ideas for research questions that you think we here at the University of Aberdeen should be addressing. If you have a child or know someone who has a child with severe or profound intellectual disability that feels that they would benefit from an up-to-date genetic test, they should ask their GP to refer them to their local genetic centre for a discussion. If you struggle to find the contact for your local genetic centre, these are listed at the British Society for Genomic Medicine website. Okay, thank you very much for those shout outs as well. Um, It's been really an interesting insight into the whole issue of um, whole genome sequencing. I want to add another call out and I'm going to repeat the email address that I gave at the beginning. It's peru at abdn.ac.uk. And I'm also asking for suggestions for future topics. If you have any any ideas on topics you would like to uh, hear more about, let us know and uh, we can mm, uh, provide another podcast. Also, actually, if you have questions about this specific topic that we've done today, we will be happy to maybe have a follow-up podcast answering some of your questions. So please get in touch. 
and uh, thank you very much thank you to all three speakers and see you again soon keep an eye out for our next installment of our podcast series this podcast is brought to you by the university of aberdeen